0: so 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. Now, last week we looked at the first six verses. What I said at the beginning of last week was this whole chapter is one continuous thought uh, that Paul's dealing with, and it's, it's one context, uh, and it's the context of where do we go for hope or how do we maintain hope in the midst of hard things? right? Life gets in the way and things go crazy and, and it's hard to, to keep our eyes on hope. It can, it can be really easy to be discouraged. And so Paul starts this passage uh, in, in verse 1 by saying, therefore having the ministry, uh, this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. So he's talking here in the context about not losing heart, staying in it, keep pressing into Jesus, um, that's the whole point of this passage. He doesn't get off of that yet. Um, he, he's really going to keep you know, pounding that drum for a while here. But what we saw last week were the first four reasons for hope, and today we'll look at four more reasons for hope. And so rather than give an eight-point sermon last week, we figured we'd break it in half and do it a little bit at a time. But just as a recap, the Last week, we saw the reasons for hope are first, that we have the mercy of God, that God's mercy is new every morning. That's what the scriptures tell us. And we have this mercy from God that we don't deserve, we didn't earn, we we couldn't contribute to it in any way except to bring Him our sin. And yet He shows us His kindness. So that was the first thing. The second thing He told us was that we have the Word of God as our greatest resource for hope. And, and so that was, that's a huge thing that we need to be in the word to hear good news of the gospel in a world that's full of bad news. Thirdly, he told us that life is all about Jesus, not about us. And that's another reason why we can have hope that life is about him, not me. And then fourthly, he says we have the light of Christ in our lives, that we don't walk in darkness. We don't walk in in total and complete blindness. We have his light to show us the way. So those are the first four. Now we're going to pick it up and basically number five here will be uh, starting in verse seven. I'll read seven through 12, uh, a little bit of a chunk here because that'll get us to the first main idea. Here's what he says. It says but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us we are afflicted in every way but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair persecuted but not forsaken struck down but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Okay, we'll stop there and this this really gets to there's a lot there. I mean, there's so much there we could talk about probably all day. Um, but the overarching point he makes here, and the 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 main reason he's giving us for hope, is in the first verse, in verse 7, that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So what's he saying? Well, he's telling us this, that our weakness, our weakness in this life, and we have many of them, but our weakness in this life is God's way of showing us his strength. Our weakness is God's way of showing us his strength. Here's, here's what he's saying. He, he talks about these jars of clay. Now, if you were a 90s kid in the church like me, you, you know there's a band called Jars of Clay. Um, I don't even know if they're still around. Probably not. Uh, but th- that's where my mind tends to go as a 90s youth group kid. That's, that's, where, that's what I was always listening to. Um, but the point of this jars of clay is referring to something that was common and extremely fragile uh, in, this, in their world. It was basically a container that people would bring to the market, throw their stuff in, and then they'd bring it home. It was just a cheap piece of junk uh, clay pot that could, could break super easily, and it wasn't expensive, and they were mass-produced, and, and they were just used to throw some junk in and, and not have to carry a thousand things in your hands, and you could put them all in a clay jar. And that's what he's talking about. So, so the equivalent today, as I think of it, uh, would be uh, the plastic bag, okay? Think about the plastic bag, the Walmart plastic bag especially. And, and you know, because you have millions of them in your kitchen, so do I, uh, they just like multiply. I don't, you don't even know how they all get to your house, uh, but it's ridiculous and these bags, I'm amazed. I, used, I mean, I used to work for Walmart a couple different times in my life in high school. And then uh, when we first moved here, I was there for a blip as well. But listen, every time I go to Walmart, I'm amazed at how thin they can make those bags. Like, and every time they get thinner. So uh, they must have some scientists in Arkansas that have, like, broken the laws of physics to make these bags. Because uh, I'm like, if they make this any thinner, it won't exist anymore just, it, it'll be gone. It's history, right? And so you stick anything in that bag, anything with a corner, and it's gonna tear it to shreds, right? That, that's, it's not a strong container. That's the point. It's this weak thing that you wouldn't put your most precious things in a Walmart bag and, and hope for the best, right? You If you had something that you really care about, you're not throwing it in a plastic bag. In fact, I, I know that when I have something that's actually worth something that I buy at Walmart, uh, I don't put it in a bag. I just carry it by itself because that's, it's safer that way. Um, and that's how it is. But here's what Paul's point is. He's, he's using their world's equivalent of the Walmart plastic bag and, and saying to them, God has you as this beat up jar of clay that doesn't seem to have a whole lot of value and doesn't seem to have a whole lot of strength, but he's put his treasure in you. You wouldn't put a treasure in a Walmart bag and they wouldn't have put a treasure in a jar of clay, but God does. God puts the gospel in our hearts, this treasure of God's grace. That's that's the point he's trying to make. We can't miss it. See, God is choosing to put the treasure of his gospel of grace into your life, broken, beat up, torn apart, you know, that life that you live and that I live. Why in the world would he do that? Why would God do this? Why would he take me and all of my weakness and you and all of your weakness and put within us the most precious thing in the universe, eternal life in Christ through, through his work and his life and death and resurrection. Why would he do that? We're not safe containers. We're not secure places. We, we're pretty fickle. He, yet he does this. Well, the reason he does it is explained at the end of verse 7. He says it's to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. See, see, this whole thing is about God using our weakness as his way of showing us his strength. He puts his gospel into broken people to show that the power of salvation does not lie in us. It's, it's not on me to save me. It's not on you to save you. It's God doing the work that we could never do for ourselves and putting within us his salvation. It is this power uh, that, that saves us and it's also that same power that matures us in Christ. And so that's, that's the thing. Like what greater way is there for God to show his power than to put his saving grace into the weakest of people? people who could never save themselves. So that's the first reason we can have hope. Don't, don't miss that. This is the context. right? We, we can have hope because our weakness is not a, a, a problem for God. It, it's not a def, deficient in, in a, you know, disqualifying issue. In fact, God uses weak people and puts his love and grace into weak people because that's all there are. That's all there are. There's only weak people. And so God does this for us in the midst of our brokenness. And we can have hope in that because our weakness is not disqualifying. It's God's way of displaying his mighty strength to to work in us. So as we go through this passage, we see that he's going to continue to explain this. And what he does is he shows contrasting ideas He's going to show weakness, and then he's going to show God's strength, and he's going to do that through through several examples. So, verse eight, he says, "We are afflicted in every way." That's weakness, and then he says, "But not crushed." That's God's strength. The reason we're not crushed under affliction, under the affliction of every possible way, is because God has his power working in us, his surpassing power, that, that is much stronger than our weakness, right? So our, our weakness is that we are afflicted in every way. What does that mean? Well, what does every mean? Well, every means every, Right? So what he's saying here is that we are afflicted physically. We are afflicted mentally. We're afflicted spiritually. We're afflicted emotionally. We're afflicted in every way. We, We have a lot of brokenness in our lives. We can be afflicted from within, and we can be afflicted from outside of ourselves. We're afflicted in every way. And if we were left to our own devices in that affliction, we would be crushed we would be crushed under the weight of it, but not in Christ. In Christ, we're afflicted in every way. Yes, that's true. We're still afflicted in every way, but we're not ultimately crushed under it. See, that's God's power at work keeping us from being crushed. He goes on to say in verse uh, 8, into verse 8, he says, we're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Perplexed is, of course, Means confused. We we don't know half of what we need to know. Probably we know less than that even. Um, we we are confused by this world we live in. We are confused by the brokenness of it. We're confused by our experiences. We are perplexed, and that that confusion could lead to being totally in despair. But it doesn't with God's power working in us through the gospel. We are perplexed. Yes, that's true, right? We are still, in Christ, confused people. But because of Christ and his surpassing power at work in us, we are not driven to despair. We can still have hope even when we don't understand what's going on. Verse 9, it says we're persecuted, that's the weakness, but not forsaken. So persecuted, of course, is more of the external suffering that, that in Paul's thinking, in Paul's experience, it's people who hate the gospel and hate Jesus who are coming for him and after him. And Paul went through the ringer um, in, in terms of persecution. He had been uh, beaten multiple times within an inch of his life. Um, he, he had been ultimately imprisoned. He wasn't imprisoned yet as he's writing these words, uh, but he was imprisoned Uh, A couple of occasions, at least, he was ultimately killed uh, by Emperor Nero's orders um, to be beheaded. And so Paul lost his life in persecution. Uh, Many, many people lose their lives around the world, even today, in nations that are closed to the gospel, right? We have a lot of examples, a lot of suffering among the church. Um, But here's the promise, right? That persecution is weakness, yes, but... What does he say? What's the promise? We're not abandoned. We may be forsaken and abandoned by people, but we won't be by God. Jesus will never abandon us. He will never forsake us, even if everybody else does. And then lastly here, he says, we are struck down, but not destroyed. I like this one. Because struck down doesn't mean that we're... He's not talking about just being you know, knocked to the ground. He's talking about being killed. Like, we're killed, but we're not destroyed. How does that make any sense? Well, it's because we're not just bodies. We're souls. We're also not just souls. We're also bodies, okay? We can't, we can't overemphasize one or the other. There's all kinds of errors on, on that. If we overemphasize the soul thing... Then, then we see all of the physical stuff as stupid and evil, uh, like the Stoics did in, in Greek philosophy. Um, they were wrong. That wasn't biblical. But we're also not just bodies. We're not just you know, pieces of meat that, that are going to you know, die and never continue on. We have souls. And someone, someone once said, I can't remember who to give credit to this. Maybe you've heard it. But someone said that your, your body doesn't have a soul, your soul has a body. And I think that that's true, and I think that's what Paul's getting into, and Paul's actually going to dig much more into that in chapter 5, at the beginning of chapter 5. That's where he's going to take us um, to help us understand eternal life in the midst of, of the physical things that we're dealing with here. But he's saying in in this section, he's just saying we can be struck down, we can be completely taken out but that doesn't mean we're destroyed our bodies might be killed but we're we continue on forever that's what martin luther says in his hymn the mighty fortress he says let goods and kindred go this mortal life also the body they may kill god's truth abideth still and and that's super important for us to keep our eyes on i think when we only see life as this life, this, okay, based off the amount of time I exercise and what I eat, I'll probably live to 70, okay? Let's just be honest. I'll probably get there. You might get longer than that. That'd be great. Um, I'm not counting on that for me. So these 70 years that I might have, and maybe God will have a joke for me and I'll live to 110 and I'll be miserable, but whatever, regardless, right? The time I have, whether it's 110 years or it's 70 years or it's another day, maybe not even the rest of today, right? We can die. That doesn't mean we're destroyed. And God will leave us, uh, will not leave us abandoned in the midst of even that. That is hope that we need to keep clinging to. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. So there he goes and he's and he then he begins to just talk about that a little bit more and verse 10 through 12 that's his point right he says we're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus right Jesus lived and he died on a cross and then he was raised to life but that death that he lived we carry that death we carry the death of Christ in our veins and we have it in us and so so whether we live or whether we die, it doesn't really matter ultimately because we have eternal life ahead of us in Christ because he lived and died and then rose again to life. So that's why he can say in verse 12, so death is at work in us, but life in you. And that's that's where we need to keep our eyes is that it's not just here and now that matters. It's not, we have an eternal life ahead of us. We need to keep our eyes on that. That's where we can have hope, right? If everything's just about here and now, there's not a lot to be hopeful about. We're not, we don't have a whole lot to like, you know, hang on to there. But if we have an eternal life ahead of us, then it's different. All right, next, let's look at verse 13. The rest of these, the next three things are going to be kind of quick here um, in in each verse, uh, 13, 14, and 15. So, Verse 13 says, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Okay, so that's a little bit like, it needs a little explaining, I think. Um, it's Paul's doing something here that's a little bit strange if we're not uh, seeing the cross references in our Bibles. Like if you if you recognize that there's, He's, he's quoting the Bible here, it becomes a lot more clear. So here's what he says. First he says, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. All right, so he's like, we believe what the Bible has said. And his Bible was the Old Testament. He didn't have all, he was writing a lot of the New Testament. I don't, I don't know how much of it had, had been passed on to them or whatever as Scripture. But they all had the Old Testament. And so he's going, look, we believe what the Bible says. And then he quotes from Psalm uh, 110, uh, 16 rather, verse 10, 116, verse 10. And he d- takes this tiny little quotation, like five or six words out of this psalm. And here it is. It's, this is what he quotes. I believed and so I spoke. Okay? Um, he, He pulls that out of verse 10 of Psalm 116, and then he says, we also believe, and so we also speak. Well, what's he getting at there? Well, I think understanding what Psalm 110 says is helpful. Like, Paul's obviously not just reciting that in a vacuum. He understands that there's a context to Psalm 116. And the context is that life is going to be really hard, and yet God is super faithful in the midst of really hard things. We don't have time to go back to that psalm and look at it in detail today, but I'd encourage you to read Psalm 116 today. It's super encouraging. It's very hopeful a hope filled psalm but but it's in the context of suffering that the psalmist writes things about god's character and faithfulness and kindness in the midst of people treating that that psalmist like garbage and so what Paul I think is saying when we understand that that's that's the context of the psalm he quotes, I think what he's saying is this that the Bible is super honest and tells us that it's going to be hard to keep moving forward, that life is hard. The Bible doesn't paint some rosy picture of life. I think there's a, there's a weird thing that, that we hear a lot on like the televangelist stuff. They're always talking about how we just get this blessing if we just give a little money or do a little thing or whatever. We'll get a whole lot of blessing and we won't have problems. None of that holds up when you actually read the Bible. Like, none of it. And I don't know where they get these ideas from. Well, I do, Satan, but whatever. Um, Regardless, it's not biblical, and it's not not in alignment with anything in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. The Bible is honest with us. And that's another reason we can actually be encouraged and cling to hope, because we have, again, it goes back to what we saw last week, that the Bible is our greatest resource for hope. But, but one of the reasons why it's so helpful for us is because it actually tells us the truth. And so we can hear these things from, from saints that lived hundreds and thousands of years before us uh, and we can cling to the same God that they clung to because God never changes. He's eternal. So the Bible says it will be hard to keep going. That's one reason why uh, we can have hope, is because we're we're being told the truth. All right, third uh, verse fourteen says, "Knowing that he, God, who raised the Lord Jesus, will raise us also with Jesus, and bring us with you into His presence." So here's his third point. It's very simple. This, is not, this one's not even hard to understand. I don't have to unpack hardly any of that. We can have hope because we have a resurrected Savior, and we in turn will have resurrected bodies. That's what he says, right? I mean, we, you don't have to get too far under the weeds to see that. He who raised the Lord Jesus, so there's our Savior who's been raised from death into life, will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. The reason we can hold on to hope in the midst of horrible things is because we know that our Savior died and rose again. We don't have a dead God that we worship. We worship a living Savior who has been raised to life eternally and is sitting at the right hand of God right now, who is ruling and reigning in the universe and will one day return. He will come back. And when he comes back, he's going to bring us with him He's going to bring us with him. He's going to raise us. If we die before he gets here, then our bodies get to be raised and they become new again. And so it's not like we're going to be living in like zombie, you know, things or anything. It's, we're going to have a real human body raised to life, made new. That's the promise of the gospel that we will have this, this resurrected Savior who resurrects us as well. And again, we're going to see more of that in chapters to come here. All right, one more before we get into kind of the crescendo of this whole passage. I'll look at verse 15, and then we'll turn our attention to the last few verses, which are hugely important. Um, verse 15 says, it's, For it is all for your sake. That's, that's, let's stop there for just a second. He says, All of that's for your sake. What that means is that everything we're seeing, God has done for you. He's, he's raised Jesus from the dead and will raise you. He did that for you. He's, he's telling us the truth in the Bible because he loves you. All of this is for you. It's for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Here's where I take away from this, what Paul's saying. I think it's, I think it's really amazing. He's telling us here that grace extends to more and more people. And that grace extending to more and more people is what produces in us more thankfulness to God. So here's how I'll, how I'll say it. Um, Jesus' church is always growing. Jesus' church is always growing growing. And it will continue to grow on and on and on. More and more people will be saved until he's done with all of this. Until everybody hears that that is called to him, he, he's, going, he, he's going to let this thing continue to grow. Now, that doesn't mean every individual local church is always going to be growing. No, there's life cycles for everything, including local churches. Churches will be planted and churches will die. And, and that's, we're just hoping to plant more churches than the ones that die out, right? That's, that's the goal. But listen, every single um, moment of every single day, God is at work in drawing his grace out to people. And people are responding to it. They are, they are hearing it. They're believing it. And that should lead us to thanksgiving, like it's an amazing thing for for me. I guess I get I get the vantage point of this because I'm I'm a part of a couple. We're as a church, we're a part of a couple networks. Um, Acts 29 is one of our affiliations, and the Evangelical Free Church is another one. But through particularly my uh, involvement with Acts 29, which is a global network, we have churches in on every continent in. Many, many, many countries. Um, It's an amazing thing to sit back and just watch God's church grow. It's just incredible. And it does produce thanksgiving when you see churches being started and established in faraway places, places that I will probably never go to and see with my own eyes, but it's happening and it's amazing to see God's work and grace extend to more people. That is a reason to, to have hope, that the church continues to grow. Not necessarily here, although I think it is here. I, I think ultimately that's not, it's not our own little you know, individual thing that we got to be focused on. It's it's the global church of Christ, the, the universal church of Christ that is constantly moving and growing. It's amazing. All right, so... Let's bring this all back around full circle. Look at verse 16. It says, so we do not lose heart. Comes right back. Started that in verse one. He's given us eight reasons why we shouldn't lose heart. And now he's said, okay, so we don't lose heart. Look at all that's happened. Then then he says this. this. These are some of my favorite verses in all the Bible. He says, though our... but the things that are unseen are eternal. So ultimately, why do we have hope? If you look at that paragraph, the answer that Paul gives us is because Jesus is our eternal hope. Jesus himself is our eternal hope. Our hope is not in physical, mental, emotional, socioeconomical, or political positions. It doesn't matter Ultimately, I want you to hear this because next, next week we're going to find out who's, who's going to be our next president or if we get to have the same guy, right? Like that doesn't matter. Ultimately, it really doesn't. I know it feels like it does because that's all we're being told. But what matters is not our political position or our economical position or our emotional or mental or physical or any of it. What matters is the person of, and work of Jesus Christ. That's that's what we need to constantly be drawn back to. And yes, I'm not saying that to say it doesn't matter in the sense that you shouldn't care who's president or you shouldn't go and like go vote, do whatever you want to do there. But listen, that's not where our hope is. Ultimately, our hope is in Jesus. And so he goes on to say here that it is this light momentary affliction and and by that it's an amazing statement light momentary affliction that what he's talking about there are all the things that we suffer in this world and some of the things we suffer in this world are horrific right they are and yet what Paul's saying is that from his vantage point from the gospel vantage point it's it's just light momentary affliction He says all of that stuff that we go through in this world, as hard as it may be in the moment, he says cannot even compare to the glory that we are going to have in Jesus eternally. He he says this light momentary affliction is preparing for us and, okay, here's the contrast, an eternal, so not momentary, eternal weight, so not light, weight of glory rather than affliction. He says, that's where all of this is coming to. All of the horrible stuff that we're going through, everything that you've been through, everything you're going to go through that you don't even know is down the road, all of it is just this momentary affliction that is going to be eclipsed by the glory that we will experience in Jesus Christ. The things that are seen, he says, are transient. means they're, just, they're not eternal. They, they just they come and go but things that are unseen are eternal. So, so when, um, when Paul talks about this eternal weight of glory, I want to just hone in a little bit as we co- close here on what he means by glory. What does that mean? And, and I think that word can kind of get a little convoluted in our minds at times. Um, and so I went to a guy that I go to a lot for help because he's, he's dead now, but he's really smart, and he wrote a lot of books. His name is C.S. Lewis. You guys all know I'm a C.S. Lewis fanboy. Okay, there's no hiding that. Um, but he wrote, a, he wrote a book. Well, there's a book called Weight of Glory. It's not, the whole book is not about this. It's actually just a collection of, of things that Lewis wrote, a lot of essays and stuff. But the first one in the book is called The Weight of Glory. And, and it was actually a sermon that C.S. Lewis preached at his church um, many, many years ago. Lewis died the same day as John F. Kennedy. So his, literally the same day they died. So his, his death got completely eclipsed by the news of JFK's assassination. So, and I think rightfully so, that was a bigger deal. So, um, but but Lewis, you know, he died pretty much in obscurity and nobody really thought about it much but before he died, he preached a sermon. I don't know how, how old he was or whatever, but he preached a, a sermon for his church and it was called The Weight of Glory. And it is based off this passage. And it's a really good sermon. I don't have time to talk about all of it, but I'll just kind of leave you with kind of a couple paragraphs because I think they're helpful. Um, it, as you read it, he he, ta- he tries to define the issue of glory so to kind of set the context, uh, he, he says that glory for him as he thought about it, and it's probably true for you too, is you when you hear that word, you're either thinking of fame or you're thinking of like light, like a light bulb or something, right? Like something bright. And and Lewis goes on to say that there's a little bit of both of those things in what Paul's talking about. But he, but he hones in specifically on the idea of glory as as fame, or or being known. And I think it's really interesting. He says on the issue of fame, he says he's not talking about fame conferred or given to us by our fellow creatures. That's not what he's talking about. What he means is fame with God, approval by God, being approved of by God. He says, I think I can imagine someone saying that he dislikes my idea of heaven as a place where we are patted on the back. You might dislike that idea too, right? It's kind of a weird idea. But he says, but proud misunderstanding is behind that dislike. In the end, the face, the face of Jesus he's talking about, which is the delight or the terror of the universe must be turned upon each of us either with one expression or the other, either conferring glory, inexpressible, or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. He says, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. He says, by God, it's not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it relates to how he thinks of us. It is written that we will stand before him, we will appear, we will be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied by God, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father delights in a son. It seems impossible, a weight of bur- or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. So, so, I mean, okay, there's the end of the quote, but what's he saying? He's a little bit heady, I get it. So let me, let me just bring that down. Um, he's saying that the weight of glory is being approved or accepted by God through the work of Jesus Christ that's an amazing thought and that really is biblical because when you when the the thing we're all shooting to hear when we get before Jesus is well done good and faithful servant that is what we're going to hear it is what we're going to hear if we believe in in the work of Jesus Christ and have trusted in that. We will hear those words. And and being known and loved by God, being approved of by God, being accepted by God in the midst of all of our brokenness, that amazing truth outweighs every terrible thing that can happen to us here. It outweighs everything. That God would accept me as a sinner that trusts in him that that he would accept me in, in that. It's almost too good to believe. But that's the truth of the Bible. And and that's the glory that will pale and compare, that will that will pale everything else. Uh, that, will, that will create this amazing glory that Paul talks about. So, with that said, let me just close with this. Let's rejoice today. What should our response be? Our response should be to rejoice that we have a God who would love us so well in in his son Jesus that we could never deserve that love and we could never earn that love. He gives it to us freely. And all we need to do is rejoice and we need to respond. We need to believe in this savior Jesus. If you've never believed in him, you can. You can do that today. You can tell him, speak to him in your own mind and let him know because he can hear your thoughts. He knows what you're thinking. He knows the cry of your heart. You can simply say to him that you need him, that you need him to forgive you of your sins and he will respond and send you his son to save you. And and that's an amazing thing. But if you've done that in your life, and I hope you have, then what we get to do is just celebrate that we are loved and approved of by God. And here's here's the thing. We're going to sing a song in just a minute Call, that's "Turn your eyes upon Jesus." It's a familiar tune. You'll, there's a little bit more to it than maybe you're, than you know, but the, the first line is simply, "Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of Earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. That's what happens when we look to Jesus. The things of Earth, they grow dim as Jesus gets brighter. In our eyes, so let's pray, and then we'll sing to Him. Father, we thank you that you've given us this um, this passage, that you've preserved it for us in your Word. And Jesus, we just pray we would believe it today. We pray we would hear it and know that this this amazing glory you have in store for us is the glory of your Son Jesus, accepting us, approving of us, and and uh, helping us, Lord. To, to know that truth. We pray you'd give us eyes to see that today, and we ask that you would um, meet us here. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take some time.